0: Blessed are You, O God, for You are holy, gracious, and good, the hope of all the faithful. Empower the meek and encourage the poor. Comfort those who mourn and fill humble hearts with gladness. Give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, peace to the peacemakers, mercy to the merciful, and honor to the despised. Sustain Your saints in service until at last they see their reward, the joy of eternal life with You through Jesus Christ our Lord. Blessed are You, O God. You are the God of all the saints, the living and and those who have died. Chosen in grace, forgiven, adopted, sanctified, glorified, and someday resurrected. O great God, You made the world with all its wonders and beautiful diversity. You made the human race in Your own image. You have remade the world now, overcoming sin and death in order to fulfill Your purpose, to gather all things up in Your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so give us this day all that You see we need. Fill us with Your Spirit, the Spirit of truth and love. Amen. You may be seated before I read the lesson of the day. This is All Saints Sunday. All Saints Day is actually November 1st each year, and then the first Sunday in November is... Uh, traditionally celebrated as All Saints Sunday, so I do want to wish you a happy All Saints Day. Uh, At the same time, All Saints Day, uh, it could just as easily be called Catholic Church Day because that's really what it's about. That word Catholic means whole or universal. The Catholic Church means the church inclusive of all believers, or we could say of all the saints. And so that's what I'm going to preach about this morning, the Catholic Church, the church of all the saints. Uh, one thing that I think we have to recognize, that the, the, the church in our day uh, is so divided that uh, the church's Catholicity is largely obscured. And so I want us to look today at uh, our call to be Catholic, to be Catholic Christians, uh, our need to recover the Catholic church, and indeed we want to look at God's purpose, God's promise to restore the Catholic church to true Catholicity. So let's pray together. Father, we do uh, ask that You would bless us this day. Uh, Father, You know that we join with Jesus in grieving the divisions of the church, and yet we join with Jesus too in praying that those divisions might be overcome, that we might all be one, that we would be one in love for one another, even as You, Father, are one with Your Son in the love of the Spirit. And so make us one. Father, we pray, make the Catholicity, the oneness of Your church, the universality of Your church, composed of all true believers, we pray that You would make this oneness visible and manifest, that the world might know that Jesus is the one You sent to be the Savior and the Messiah. This we pray in His name, Amen. A lot has certainly happened in the last 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, Uh, The church has certainly been totally reshaped, but society has been reshaped as well. Uh, However much we might want to say that the seeds of the Reformation were planted long before Martin Luther, and they certainly were, uh, there's no question that in 1517 God began to do something spectacular. Uh, The result was nothing less than a recovery of the Gospel, the good news of God's gracious and free salvation in Christ. But there was a lot more than just that. Downstream from the recovery of the Gospel, there was an explosion. An explosion in prosperity, in progress in the areas of science and technology. An explosion in greater civil liberties and freedoms. There was a great expansion of political and economic freedom. The Reformation has given to us benefits of incalculable value. Uh, and that's why we've spent much of the past year, especially last Sunday, celebrating the Reformation. But the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is not just a time for celebration. It's also a time for reflection and I would dare say even repentance. The first of Martin Luther's famous 95 theses stated that when the Lord Jesus Christ said repent, He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. That when Jesus said repent, He meant repentance. Turn from your sin and keep on turning. Keep on repenting. In other words, there's nothing more Protestant than repentance. There's nothing more Protestant than diagnosing the church's sins and seeking to repent. And that's what we do Today, After the Reformation, a slogan arose, Semper Reformanda, meaning always reforming. The Reformed church is always being reformed according to the Word of God. Martin Luther said, I see more than the blessed Augustine saw, and they that come after me will see more than I see. In other words, Luther himself knew that his Reformation was not a finished product. It was an ongoing product. Project. the work of Reformation is never finished until Christ comes again at the last day, the church will always be in need of further reform according to the Word of God. And yet we can still look back on the Reformation and ask, was the Reformation a success? Did the Reformation accomplish its aims? And in many ways we have to say yes, the Reformation was a resounding success. The very fact that we are meeting here today is proof of the Reformation's success. The fact that you are hearing the Gospel proclaimed to you. That the Scriptures are being read to you in your own language. That you're hearing God's promise, God's assurance of forgiveness. These are all signs that the Reformation was a great success. The fact that we are taking the Lord's Supper today with the bread and the wine and everybody will receive. This is one of the great Reformation successes as well. That we'll do the Lord's Supper just as we do every Lord's Day for all of God's people. These are signs of the Reformation's success, proof that the Reformation worked. Hundreds of millions of people over the last 500 years have enjoyed the assurance of God's favor and God's forgiveness due to the teaching and work of the reformers. And that is something to be grateful for. But at the same time, there is at least one area where the Reformation failed. Or perhaps we can say it's not so much that the Reformation failed, we could just say it's not finished. The Reformation didn't fail so much as it is not finished. There's unfinished business to take care of. See, the Reformers had this desire to reform the whole church. They were, after all, Reformers, not dividers. They saw themselves as church Reformers, not church splitters. Dividing the church is the last thing they wanted to do. Uh, I don't think the Reformers are to blame at all for the break that took place with the Roman Catholic Church and with the papacy. After all, as you've heard me tell the story, Martin Luther was excommunicated without ever getting a fair hearing. It would be like condemning a man to death without ever giving him a fair trial. That's what happened to Luther again and again. He would go to these diets, these assemblies, and all he was looking for was a debate, an open Bible discussion. And yet every time they would do the same thing. They'd lay out his books on the table, and they'd say, are these yours? And he'd say, yes. And then they'd say, do you recant them? And he'd say, well, not unless I can be shown from Scripture where I'm in error. And in appealing to Scripture, Luther was not only being faithful to Scripture itself, viewing Scripture as our highest and only infallible authority, but he was also being true to the historic Christian tradition, which has always said that articles of faith must be established from the Scriptures. He would point out that he was simply being true to a vow he had taken when he first became a doctor of theology in 1512. On that occasion, he had sworn to preach faithfully and purely my most beloved holy Scripture. That's all. He was simply seeking to be true to the vow he had taken as a monk and as a doctor of theology when he insisted, show me from Scripture. But Luther never got that argument. Likewise, John Calvin in Geneva. Geneva really became a center of uh, the Protestant movement and John Calvin settled down there. And not necessarily because he wanted to, but because... Uh, he was uh, he was pressured to, but it became a center of reform. And at one point, the Roman Catholic Cardinal Jacopo Sattolato wrote a letter to the city of Geneva, really to the city fathers, the, the people and the leaders of Geneva, pleading with them to return to the Roman Catholic Church, to come back to the papacy and and the fold of the Roman Church. He said, look, the Reformers have have, have torn the seamless robe of Christ. Not even the Roman soldiers would do that. And yet here these Reformers have torn the seamless garment of Christ's robe. Well, the city of Geneva called on Calvin to write their response on their behalf, and he did so. And it's interesting. You can actually pick this up. It's called a a Reformation letter. It's in print today. It's fascinating uh, to see what Calvin says in his reply. Uh, He says... All we have attempted has been to renew the ancient form of the church. He said that's all this is about, is recovering the ancient form of the church that has been lost. He says actually our agreement with antiquity is far greater than yours. And then he goes on to prove that. Calvin was very glad to enter into a a contest, if you will, with his Roman Catholic opponent, a contest to see who was really more Catholic and who was really more ancient. He basically argues the reformational way of being Catholic is better than the Roman way of being Catholic. It's more true to the Scriptures. It's actually more true to the church's own tradition. And I point this out just because I want you to understand. Celebrating the Reformation is not just a way of celebrating the last quarter of church history, the last 500 years, while leaving the previous 1,500 years before that on the shelf. No, see, really, the Reformation gathered up into itself the best of all that went before. And so in celebrating the Reformation, we're really celebrating the whole history of the church. The Reformers were not sectarians. Luther on his deathbed warned against divisions. It was his greatest fear. Calvin warned against what he called the mutilation of Christ's body. Luther did not want to make Lutherans. Calvin was not interested in making Calvinists. The Reformers were Catholic Christians in the best sense of that term. They were interested in reforming the whole of the church. And so blaming the Reformers for the division of Rome would be wrong. It would be like blaming the apostles for dividing Judaism in the first century. It would be like blaming the apostles for the division that took place in Israel in the first century. They didn't divide Israel wrongly. Rather, they were cast out of the synagogues for the sake of their loyalty to God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. So it was with the Reformers. They were cast out of the Roman church because of their loyalty to Christ and His Gospel. And so we celebrate their convictions, we celebrate their courage, we celebrate their Catholicity when we celebrate the Reformation. The Reformers were not to blame for their split with the Roman church, but, that was not the only split that took place. See, not long after that split, Protestants began to split from one another. You've heard me talk about this already. It really started with the break between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli at the Colloquy of Marburg in 1529. Uh, a, a, a big break, a big rift between now the German Reformation, well, those who will become known as the Lutherans, and the Swiss Reformation, those will become known as the Reformed. It continued in England when Anglicans split from Rome because King Henry VIII wanted a divorce. And then you had Presbyterians and Congregationalists splintering out of the Anglican church and you could debate all day long whether or not they were right or wrong in that. In fact, in the generations after the Reformation, the story of Protestantism largely becomes one of continuous division. And it's why we see so many different Protestant denominations in our own day. Today it's estimated, depending on whose count you you, you go by, uh, there's something like 5,000 different denominations. And the effect of this is hard to fathom. Uh, the church certainly had divisions before the Reformation, and we shouldn't overlook that. There were a lot of divisions within the church prior to the Reformation, especially the split between East and West in 1054. But those splits that took place in the church between 1520, let's say, when Luther was excommunicated, and the year 1600 were simply unprecedented. And of course, that pattern of division has continued down to the present. Just consider this, as one historian points out. In the year 1500, everyone in Europe agreed on what the word Christian meant. Everybody knows when we talk about The word Christian, what that means. We're all in agreement over that. But by the year 1600, that was no longer the case. There were a number of different competing definitions of what it means to be a Christian. In the year 1500, a Christian could travel from one end of the Europe to other without any fear of persecution. By the year 1600, every form of the Christian faith was illegal somewhere in Europe. By the year 1600, Christians no longer worshipped together, They no longer recognized one another as brothers and sisters. In many cases, they did not recognize one another's baptisms or ordinations or weddings. In the decades after the Reformation began, thousands of Christians were killed by other Christians. These are Christians going to war with Christians. Baptized Trinitarians shedding the blood of other baptized Trinitarians. They share The same baptism. Baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet they demonized one another through their rhetoric and attacked one another on the field of battle. Once the church was divided in this way, a couple more things happened that you need to understand. Because this helps us understand just what's at stake in the recovery of Catholicity. One thing is it became very easy to become a skeptic. Where did so much irreligion and what we call secularism or secular humanism come from? Well, once you have all of these different churches, the question, of course, arises, which one of these churches is the true church? Where is the church found? Who really has the truth? And perhaps nobody has the truth. By the 19th century, multitudes were rejecting the Christian faith altogether on this basis. How can this be the truth if these Christians are divided against one another in these ways? So it became easy to be a skeptic. But the other thing that happened right along with this is that in order to keep the peace amongst the different warring religious factions, religion was essentially privatized. That is, in order to keep the public peace, religion would be made a matter of private opinion. That's the way rulers eventually came to say we will keep the peace amongst these different warring factions is we will privatize religion. Religion was privatized in order to keep the peace. And so religion was no longer regarded as a matter of public truth, shaping public life. No, from this time forward, public life would become secular, governed by reason rather than revelation. Now, I don't need to tell you that actually as it turned out, governing public life by reason led to far, far, far more bloodshed. Uh, Those those, uh, centuries after secularization took hold were actually far bloodier than anything that happened after the Reformation. So that didn't work either. But that's the move that was made. And that's why religious truth has been driven out of the public square. The divisions of the church that came out of the Reformation led directly to the secular public square we, say to, we see around us today. You could say we squabbled away Christendom. We squabbled away our inheritance by fighting with one another. And so here's the problem, if I can really put it in a nutshell. Here's, here's the problem we face. On the one hand, the Reformation was successful in recovering the Gospel of God's grace. On the other hand, it also split the church, which would seem to contradict the Gospel. And so what do we do with this? How do we celebrate the Reformation and all its achievements while simultaneously lamenting all that's gone wrong since? Now I need to say here it's true that some of the divisions that took place were necessary, even legitimate. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian really is. Not every body or institution that claims to be a church really is. There is such a thing as a false church. Those who have departed so far from, we'll just say, the faith of the Nicene Creed and historic Christian morality, they don't deserve to be considered as churches or Christians any longer. There is that reality we have to deal with. Some divisions are necessary, even legitimate. Think of Jesus saying in Matthew 10, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Or think of the prophets who divided Israel and the apostles who also divided Israel by gathering faithful believers around God's Word. There are legitimate divisions. But there can be no doubt, no doubt at all, that many, 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 many of the divisions that came after the Reformation were clearly not necessary. They were not legitimate. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul asked the Corinthians, a a very divided city church there in Corinth, he said, why are you dividing from one another? He says that in dividing from one another, they're dividing Christ. He He says to the Corinthian Christians who are dividing Christ from one another, is Christ divided? And we have to wrestle with the same question today. I think Paul would ask us the same question today. Is Christ divided? And if the answer is no, then we need to do something about that. So that is reflected in the way we do church together. See, the question here really is how can the Reformation be both a work of God worthy of celebration and something that seems so contrary to God's Catholic purpose that we must lament it? There is no doubt God aims at uniting all of humanity in a representative way in His church. The church is the reunion of the human race. The church in God's design, in God's purposes, is Catholic. The church includes Jew and Gentile, male and female, black and white, young and old, rich and poor. God's church is Catholic. God aims at one holy Catholic church. That's what should be manifest. When the church looks at the world, that's what they should see is this oneness of believers gathered up together in Christ. But of course we know when the world looks at the church, when we look at the church, that's not what you see. You don't see Catholicity. You don't see the reunion of the human race. You don't see this oneness. You see divisiveness. You see the fracturing and the splintering. So What we see when we look at the Scriptures as a whole and this is very, very interesting, I think this helps us understand what's happening and what God is doing. When we look at the Scriptures as a whole, what we see is that God creates the human race as a unity. And then He divides it. And then He reunites it again. We see God creating a people for Himself as a unity. Then dividing His people, often through their own sinfulness. And then reuniting His people again in a more glorious way. The whole story of the Bible seems to work this way. First, there was the man Adam. And God divided him, as it were, into a man and a woman. Formed the woman from his side. God ripped Adam in two and He formed that other part of Adam into a woman. And then He reunited them in this glorious marriage, this relationship of oneness. So there you have it right there in the very beginning of the Bible. an Original unity. Division, a more glorious reunion. But as you read through the Scriptures, you see this happening again and again and again. Then there was Noah, who really is a new Adam. He's a new father of the post-flood human race. And so the whole human race is united in Adam. But then what happens at Babel in Genesis 11, we read it this morning, God divides this new Noahic humanity. But then in Genesis 12, God promises to reunite this now divided humanity in Abraham's seed. In Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They'll share in the same blessing. All the families of the earth, these different families that have come out of the Tower of Babel, will all be united together in Abraham. In his seed. But then God divides Abraham. Abraham becomes the first Jew divided from all the Gentile peoples of the earth. God gives him the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17. And then God further divides Jew from Gentile. He furthers that division, building a wall between them, as it were, by giving the law through Moses. And so now God's really driven a wedge right through the human race. Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other. Each with their own purposes and their own roles to fulfill. But then, as God has has, has has built that wall between Jew and Gentile. We see God then reiterating and reinforcing His promise that He will heal this division. He will overcome this breach by again uniting all peoples in Abraham's seed. And so you have these glorious prophecies on the other side of the giving of the law and this wall that's being built between Jew and Gentile. You've got these glorious prophecies of a reunited human race in Israel's promised Messiah. So for example, Psalm 87... God says He will make those of Babylon and Philistia and Tyre say, I was born in Zion. He will make these Gentiles, as it were, naturalized citizens of Israel. He will bring them in to His own kingdom. You see this pattern too in Israel's own history. Later on in His history, God divides Israel. So you've got Israel divided off from the Gentiles, but now God divides Israel as the northern tribes break away from the southern tribe of Judah. But even then, God promises a reunion. So God says to Ezekiel to take two sticks, one for Judah, one for Israel, and to tie them together because God is going to bind these different peoples, these different tribes together in a glorious reunion. Division will be followed by reunion. See, this is the pattern you see again and again in Scripture. There is union, separation, and then reunion. Union, separation, and then a more glorious reunion really is the story of the whole Bible. And of course, what the New Testament shows us is that all of these promised reunions are fulfilled in Jesus. He is the new Adam, divided from His bride at the cross, but now united to her by the Holy Spirit. He is the promised Son of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth are blessed and united. That's his purpose. He's the promised son of Abraham, in whom all the families of the earth are brought together. He is the new Israel, who incorporates Jewish and Gentile believers into himself, into his one body, making them one to one new man. Yes, you could say Jesus brought division. So, for example, he divided his disciples from the rest of Israel, unbelieving idolaters. Israel. He was divided even from his disciples when he went to the cross. But those divisions were not ends in themselves. They point us to the real purpose of Jesus' ministry, which is to heal the breach in the human race once and for all. To gather up the scattered human race and to form one new man, His church. That is Jesus' purpose. This is God's purpose. The church is God's new humanity. I think you see this in the passage we read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. There Paul describes this Jew Gentile divide imposed by God himself and now overcome and eradicated in Christ. Paul says the Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God. They were separated from God, separated from God's people. But Paul now says, through Christ, these Gentiles have not only been reconciled to God, they have been incorporated into God's family. Precisely because they have been brought near to God, they've also been brought into God's new Israel, incorporated into God's covenant people. Paul shows in that passage in Ephesians 2, the cross not only breaks down the wall dividing God from humanity, the wall of sin, But Christ on the cross also breaks down the wall of the law between Jew and Gentile. So He reconciles everyone to God and He reconciles us to one another. Ephesians 2.15 says that in Himself He has made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Jesus came to create shalom, to create peace in the human race so we would all be one in Him. These Gentiles had been strangers and aliens, but now they are full members of God's household. Once they were distant from the temple, now, Paul says, they are God's temple. A house of prayer for all nations. The church is the family of God the Father adopted by Him. The church is the body of Christ the Son. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what the church is. Ephesians 4 continues this same Theme, showing us that the church is God's reunited, reconstituted humanity. The church is the social form, you could say the public, social, visible manifestation of the gospel in the world. That's what the church is to be, a living embodiment of the message we preach. So we preach the gospel not only with our lips, but with our lives, by how we live together as the church. The church is the place, Paul shows us, where God overcomes the sinful divisions that have fractured the human race. Ephesians 4 is all about oneness. It says there's one spirit and one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. He shows us the one God will have one people. That is what's to be visibly manifest the oneness of God's people. Because God is one, His church must be one. And indeed, Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are one and we will be one. And so he says we should live as one now. Because of what we are and because of what we will be, this is how we're to live. This is how we walk worthy of the calling we have received in the Gospel. We are one in Christ already. There will be an even greater oneness to come in the future. And so right now, we should practice our oneness with one another, with other believers, by how we live, by how we treat one another. We can unpack a couple aspects of this. One of the things that Paul says is that uh, there's one baptism. One baptism for all of God's people. This is one of the things that all God's people share in common. We have all been baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a ritualized manifestation of our oneness. That's a sign of our oneness as God's family. And all baptisms into the Triune Name ought to be recognized for that reason. We would never rebaptize somebody who's already been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit no matter what church They come from because there is one baptism. He says one faith. We share a common trust in our Lord, a common faith in our Lord. And I think that's not just the act of faith, but I think it's even the content of that faith ought to be shared. Philippians 2, Paul says, we ought to be of the same mind. We ought to be like-minded in the faith. That too is an aspect of our oneness. We ought to think the same thoughts about God. And about the Gospel. And of course you see this too in John 17, our Gospel lesson this morning, where you see Jesus just before He goes to the cross. What is on His mind? This is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus interceding for His disciples, for His church. And He prays for their oneness. He prays to His Father for His disciples that they may all be one. He says, even as you, Father, are in Me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. See what Jesus is saying here in this prayer? The unity of the church is rooted in the unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. The unity of the church is grounded in the oneness that the Father and the Son share together in the Spirit. And so the church's unity is to mirror God's triunity. And when we're not united, we're showing the world something false about God. When we are united, we're showing the world the truth about God. Jesus' prayer for unity, Jesus' prayer expresses the kind of unity He desires for His church. Just as the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son, so we are in one another. I am in you and you are in me. And so we're to live like that. We're to relate to one another as the Father and the Son relate to one another. And it's clear Jesus wants this to be a unity that the whole world can see. He says this is the purpose of this unity so the world may know He is the one the Father sent. Catholicity and mission go together. This again is why our culture has slipped away into apostasy, I think. It's why our... Mission today, even, is often so ineffective because we are divided against one another. Our oneness with one another ought to be visibly manifest in our relationships, certainly, but even in our institutions. Jesus is praying for Catholicity. He's praying for the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. He is praying for visible Catholicity. A church for all the saints. A church that is composed of all humanity. I think we see this too in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, it's as if we have God's family portrait. It's a people drawn from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language that no one can number. This is the church. All these different people groups who don't always get along with one another in the world now living in fellowship and in love with one another in the church. That's what God wants the world to see when they look at the church. See, Jesus launched His church into a world that was deeply divided. Into a world where every race, tribe, class, and nation lived unto itself. And really saw every other people group as subhuman, quite literally. Paganism had no... No sense of humanity as a whole. No view of a single human race or a single human history. Nothing like that existed in paganism. It was a tribal world and the human race was tribalized. And whatever tribe you were a part of, that was the true humanity. And every other tribe was subhuman, beastly and barbaric. Jesus came to make humanity whole. To make the human race Catholic. In his church, he came to reverse and to undo and to overcome all these divisions between different people groups and to form one new family in himself. He's the new Adam. He's Adam 2.0, the new and improved Adam, the glorified Adam. And the church is his new family, a matured and reunited humanity. This reunited humanity in Christ is the gospel, it's the manifestation of of the Gospel, what God is doing in the world. Now what this means is that the divisions that have arisen among God's people, especially I would say those that have hardened into what we could call denominational divisions, institutional divisions, those kinds of divisions that have come in especially since the Reformation, those divisions are contrary to God's will. I'm not talking here about false churches. I'm not talking about those who abandon the Nicene faith. I'm talking about those who confess faith in the triune God with us. Divisions among God's people are contrary to God's will for the church. I don't think those divisions, again, mean so much that the Reformation has failed. I do think they mean the Reformation is not yet finished. There is still work to be done. These divisions we see all around us do not mean that the prayers of Jesus will go unanswered. The prayers of Jesus will be answered even if they're not fully realized at this moment. God tore the church apart in the 1500s and then in subsequent centuries. But we should not doubt He will reunite them just as he has separated and then reunited in the past so he has separated and he will reunite again and we know this because catholicity is his cosmic purpose one god means there must be one church and he will do it. he will accomplish his catholic purposes and that's good to know that all of this is god's doing ultimately Because reuniting the divided church we see all around us today is so far beyond anything any of us can do. Humanly speaking, it is simply impossible. We're really asking for a miracle. But God will do it. I'm confident of that. And when God brings it about, just like every other reunion, it will be more glorious than anything that has existed before. I don't know how God will do it. Perhaps God will raise up a benevolent dictator Another Constantine, you know, Constantine in the 4th century gathered up all the Christian bishops and said, you guys are divided from one another. Figure it out. And what we got out of that was a Nicene Creed and a united church. Perhaps God will use a great persecution to do it. And you know, Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Roman Catholics all sharing a jail cell together. And that's where we'll work it out. Perhaps God will raise up some incredibly gifted theologians who can articulate things in a way that is persuasive to all of us. I don't know how God will do it, but I trust that He will. Because God's goal is Catholicity. Jesus died that there might be a Catholic church. One church for all the saints. God's going to do it, But I want to close with this. If God's going to do it, what do we do In the meantime, is there anything for us to do? Is there any role that we can or should play to promote Catholicity, to promote this kind of unity with other believers? Again, none of us have any way of unifying the church visibly. There's really very little any of us could do. Even me as a pastor, very, very little any of us can do to bring about the institutional and governmental dimension of our unity. But there are other things that we can do. We can certainly make Christian love visible in our relationships. And I think we often fail to do this even in very basic ways. I think actually the way that oftentimes Christians treat one another, yes, sometimes in the same church, but but certainly a lot of times across those lines, Christians in other churches, the way we treat one another at times is simply inexcusable. The way we treat one another on the internet is often inexcusable and that's a public sign of our disunity uh, that further reinforces all of those negative things that I've already talked about so what's one of the, what what's the first thing you can do certainly one of the things you can do is simply love your fellow christians love your fellow christians in this church love christians in other churches be a good neighbor be faithful and kind and a servant to your fellow christians We all can do that right now. And that does promote Catholicity. In our little corner of the world, that's one way we can do it. Further, there are certainly common projects that we can work on in our culture. The so-called ecumenism of the trenches. That's a real thing, and I think it really is effective. We should band together with other Christians. We don't have to agree with everything with other Christians to get together and work with them on all kinds of cultural projects to stand together against all kinds of dehumanizing trends and idolatrous trends in our culture. We can work together with Christians and other communions to seek to end abortion and care for mothers who are experiencing a crisis pregnancy. We can work together with Christians and other churches to seek to eradicate poverty, to promote orphan care and adoption, to work for sound economic policies, to promote... Uh, the the, uh, creational definition of marriage that honors the institution God ordained in the beginning, knowing that's good not just for the church but for all of humanity. We can join together with other Christians in fighting against sex abuse. We can join together in standing against the rampant gender confusion and all the other implications of the sexual revolution that continue to get worked out in our culture. We don't have to agree with everything in order for us to band together with other groups of God's people to do these things. These are all ways that Christians can work together, even if we don't agree across the board theologically on every issue. We ought to practice this kind of ecumenism of the trenches, a Catholicity of the trenches. But there's one more thing that I will encourage you to do. You know, sometimes we talk about friendship evangelism. You need to have unbelievers in your life, non-Christians in your life, people you're reaching out to, befriending them. And you're loving them because they're made in the image of God, but of course you also long to see them remade in the image of Christ. And so along the way, as you have befriended them, you seek to share the Gospel with them. You get into those kinds of discussions. You push yourself to do that. To make that happen. To make those discussions happen. Well, perhaps we should also think about, uh, just as we have friendship evangelism, we could talk about friendship Catholicity. Seek to befriend Christians in other denominations and in other traditions and get to know them and share your life with them and love them and then argue with them. (laughs) Okay, Argue with them. Don't be shy. Speak up about what you believe. Now to do this, of course, you've got to know what you believe. You've got to know what your church believes. You've got to be able to defend it, uh, to make an argument for it. But here's the thing. I think we have to be very honest about this. The only way we can ever unify the church is if we come together in like-mindedness. Paul says that in Philippians 2 and other places. And that means people are going to have to change their minds. Other Christians are going to have to change their minds about any number of issues. And in order to change their minds, they're going to have to hear good arguments. And so go make those arguments. Somebody's going to have to concede the point. Listen to their arguments and make your own. And make them in a way that other Christians will concede the argument to you. That's what I would encourage you to do. Go befriend Christians in other traditions and argue with them over an open Bible. I mean, How many Baptists have ever heard a really good argument for paedo baptism, when I have talked to Baptists about the baptism issue, I often find they've never really heard a good argument in favor of paedo baptism, infant baptism. They ought to hear those arguments straight from the scriptures. How many Arminians have heard a good argument for God's sovereignty or for predestination? Again, very few have. And so, go do it. Go make those arguments. Now I'm not telling you to be obnoxious. Go, okay? don't be that guy. You want to be winsome. You want to be kind. You want to speak the truth in love, but make sure you speak the truth. In our culture today, it's sometimes easier to do the love part than it is the speaking part. We do the loving part. We don't do the speaking part. Speak the truth in love. See, I'm afraid we often have the wrong idea of what Catholicity really means. We think that Catholicity means there must be some kind of compromise. That Catholicity can only work if we don't take our beliefs too seriously. And so Catholicity means leaders from different churches getting together and sitting down at the table and negotiating. You know, So you got Christians with from different traditions who are negotiating with one another, seeing where they can compromise. And so we say to the Roman Catholics, hey, if you'll give up purgatory, then we'll reformulate justification. And if you'll let priests get married, then we'll stop complaining about how you pray to saints. And it's like working out this compromise at give and take. But that's not it at all. That is not what Catholicity means. Catholicity is not compromise. It is not even seeking the lowest common denominator. what's something we can all agree on. That's a starting point, but that's not the fullness of it. Catholicity is unity in the truth. And indeed, this is why the Protestants in the 16th century, Luther and Calvin and Martin Buzer, they were the true Catholics of their day. You know, the original meaning of that word protestant does not link so much with our English word protest, though that might be part of it. It really links to our English word to confess. To be a Protestant is to be a confessor. It means you confess God's truth. It means we confess God's truth to one another. We confess God's truth before a watching world. And so go be a Protestant. Go confess God's truth. Go make the good confession. And go be a Catholic. Go be a good Catholic Christian. On this day, All Saints Sunday, commit yourself anew to the unity of the church. Join with Jesus in praying for God's purposes for a united church. Pray that the one holy Catholic and apostolic church would look like it. That the church would look like the church. The the way that it should look as oneness. Pray that our oneness and our Catholicity would be visibly and publicly restored. And commit yourself to being a true Protestant. To being a confessor. To confessing the truth. Proclaiming God's truth. Arguing for and defending God's truth. Yes, do it in a winsome way. But do it. Make your case. And do it with the aim of bringing all of God's people to like-mindedness. Get into discussions with people to show how biblical and how reasonable your faith is. Now, are you right about everything? Am I right about everything? Perhaps not. Probably not. There are certainly things all of us have wrong. But we need to follow the Scriptures wherever they lead us. And so we should have these open Bible discussions. We should confess and proclaim the truth of the Scriptures and the truth of our tradition, the truth as we see it as best we can. Be a Catholic and be a Protestant. To be Catholic means being determined to confess and proclaim and gather around God's truth. Catholicity is where truth and love converge. Catholicity means truth and love come together. They belong together. Catholicity means being committed to both the peace and the purity of the church. We are Protestants confessing God's truth and we are Catholics seeking to do it in love. We are the Catholic church. This is All Saints Day. We are the Catholic Church. Let's go live like it. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that You would bless us and grant us wisdom and strength that we might live as faithful Protestant Catholics confessing Your truth in love. We pray that You would unite Your church even as Jesus is praying right now that all His disciples may be made one. This is our desire as well. Make it happen, God. Make it happen. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.